This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. The reading comes from Galatians chapter 1. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I know in your worship folder it says uh, that we would work our way uh, through verses 10, 11, and 12 as well, but uh, we have decided to just stop uh, at the end of verse 9 and pick up, uh, Lord willing, next week uh, in verse 10. And so today is our second sermon uh, in our series uh, through the book of Galatians. And last week uh, we saw in part the context for the book and the content in the book. The context is conflict. And the content is rescue. Uh, Two brief sentences in review and then we'll move on. Uh, The Apostle Paul is in hot debate with false teachers uh, over the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, And in that debate, Paul is presenting Jesus not just as a teacher who guides, but as a hero who saves to the uttermost. But I want to move beyond context and content this week. And I want to talk about the goal of Galatians. What is Paul's purpose uh, in writing Galatians? What is his aim? What is his bullseye? And here it is. His primary goal in Galatians is pastoral, not theological. His primary goal was not to defeat the false teachers, but to reclaim the Galatian Christians. Pastoral, not theological. Uh, If you look at the moment of Paul's writing, verse 6, the Galatians are are present tense deserting. That is, they are present tense turning away from him who called them in the grace of Christ. And and Paul says they're turning to a different gospel. And then he very quickly says, not that there is such a thing as another gospel. Uh, Our English words, uh, our English uh, translations, excuse me, here use uh, the word deserting in verse 6. And that's because uh, this very simple Greek word that means to turn away or turn aside in Greco Roman culture, it was most often used to describe turncoats. Uh, That is, soldiers who would abandon uh, their leaders and their comrades in battle. And so today I will use both phrases. I, I will talk about the Galatians turning away from the gospel, and I'll talk about the Galatians deserting the one, that is the Father, who called them by the grace of Christ in the gospel. I want you to remember what we said last week, that in every other letter of Paul's in the New Testament, in every other letter, Paul says something nice about or says something nice to his audience after the salutation. So remember, verses 1 through 5 are the salutation. 6 and following, ordinarily he would say something nice, either to God about them or to them about themselves. But in Galatians, he jumps right in. He says, I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting the Father. Uh, the word astonished is, our, is like our English word flabbergasted. I'm flabbergasted. I'm blown away. 
This word is most often almost predominantly used in the New Testament to talk about people's reactions to Jesus when he would perform miracles. Whoa, he speaks and the sea obeys. Wow, that guy was dead. Now he's alive. Uh, Amazing, the uncontrollable is now controlled uh, by Jesus. Uh, Speaking of the garrison demoniac. If you look at verse six, Paul will tell you why he's flabbergasted. The Galatians are deserting the one who called them. In order to sort of understand Paul's astonishment, you have to remember that in the Bible, when God speaks, when God calls, when God summons, things happen. And so when when God says, let there be light at the beginning at creation, light uh, appeared. It happened instantaneously. He didn't say, let there be light. Now I'm going to go make some light. His voice brought light into being. When Jesus, who is God in skin in the New Testament, when he comes and he, he speaks to Lazarus, for example, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus was dead. And Jesus resurrected him simply by saying, Lazarus, come forth. He did not say, now I'm going to go perform CPR. I'll be back in a second. He spoke the word and it happened. And in the Bible, the voice of God and the call of God is very powerful. It's very effective. Uh, Paul had witnessed this in the Galatians. In chapter 3, Paul said, you received the Holy Spirit. In in chapter 3, Paul Paul will say, God worked miracles among you according to your faith. Uh, Paul says in in our text, verse 9, you received the gospel. That is to say, you believed, you had faith. Paul calls them brothers and sisters, part of God's family in verse 11. And if you look really closely at verses 8 and 9, Paul does not curse them. He curses the false teachers uh, trying to trouble them. And this is why Paul is flabbergasted. There are these genuine Christians who had just had a powerful experience of God and of the gospel, and they're already turning from him to another gospel. Not that there is another gospel. And so Paul is blown away by their deserting of the Father. And so again, Paul's goal is not a victory uh, in this debate with the false teachers. His goal is the reclamation of these Christians. I like the word reclamation because it means to retrieve something that belongs to you. Paul is essentially saying, these people belong to the Father, and I intend to get them back. I think it's really important for us, a room with a lot of believers in it, it's really important for us to note that the Galatians were Christians. The book of Galatians is all about the gospel, and it's not written to people thinking about Christianity. It's written to Christians who are deserting their father and who are turning away from that gospel. I think it's really, really important for us to know that at the outset of this series. And so in light of that, again, another preparatory sermon for this series, I want to ask and answer four questions, not a longer sermon than normal, uh, but four points. Uh, When were the Galatians deserting? What did their turning away look like? Uh, What caused their turning away? And why were the Galatians deserting so quickly? All right, so let's dig in. When were the Galatians deserting the Father and turning away from the gospel? Look at verse six. I've already said it. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by grace. 
If you recall what we said last week, it's within months that Paul has left Galatia, that these false teachers have come from Jerusalem and they've arrived in Galatia and they've began to attack Paul and they've began to attack his, his message, his message of God's grace and peace. And so Paul came and taught that God is a gracious God and a merciful God, but the false teachers came and they, de- they denied God's grace. They, they were okay with mercy to a point, but they weren't willing to say God's grace is going to cover you in the future. The false teachers had told the Galatians that they had things to do if they wanted to stay in God's family. And that's in opposition to what Paul had taught them when he told them you'll always be in God's family because God's eternal son has died for you. When when Paul left town, these people were Kellerites. They they were grace-based, gospel-centered, Jesus-believing Christians. They were in the sonship movement. That when he leaves town, they're, they're filled with the Spirit. That's what the text says. They have joy and hope and peace and freedom, and they have servants' hearts. He's blown away by their service to him. But within months, so quickly, they're deserting the Father, they're turning away from Christ, they're looking for life and peace and salvation in a different message. I want you to listen to this as it pertains to us. The Bible teaches quite clearly and rather repetitively that staying focused on Jesus, standing firm in the gospel, continually believing in grace is really, really, really hard to do. Have you ever left a worship service full of gratitude and wonder and faith and joy? Have you ever left a worship service filled with a love for God and a, free from the love of, a freedom from the love of self uh, only to find yourself within a few minutes or hours being full of yourself again, anxious and fearful and cynical? I have. Sometimes during CBR, that's what we call city Bible reading. It's this Bible reading initiative that we uh, partake in as a culture. Uh, I've sometimes had a time in CBR where I'll have this powerful experience of God's presence. I will uh, literally taste and see that the Lord is good. I will know his love. I will go through something that I cannot put into words and that I, I cannot explain. I will feel free and powerful and hopeful. I will feel as if I could fly. And then a few hours later, I'm feeling tense and hopeless and anxious. And I'm feeling like the whole weight of the world is resting on my shoulders. And at some point, I'll come to the realization, I have completely and utterly forgotten about God and his love for me. And I would just ask, has that ever happened to you? Do you ever ask yourself, is there something wrong with me? And the answer is yes, there's something very wrong with you. But you're not strange. You're not abnormal. It's something we all experience. When did they desert? When did they turn away? When did they stop believing? Essentially, right away. That's why Paul writes this in chapter 5, verse 1. Listen to this. He says, For freedom, Christ has set you free. That's past tense. It defines them. They are free, they're Christians. And then he, he, he says a command. A present tense command, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. The Bible teaches that that we won't just automatically stay aware of and stay tapped into God's grace. The, The Bible says that we will have to intentionally stand firm. We will have to purposefully stay put. We will have to make ourselves stay in grace or we'll drift away. 
God's grace is always there, but our awareness of it and our experience of it is not always there. So quickly deserting. One of the things that my kids do at the beach is they stand in waist-deep water and they try to keep their feet planted on the ground and in the sand and they try to stand firm and they do everything they can to not get pushed around by the waters. And what Paul is telling us here in Galatians is that we're prone to wander and we're prone to drift and if we don't intentionally and purposefully stand our feet in the grace of God, we will turn away. Or if you think about it like this, my kids will be in the waves and they'll be jumping and swimming and body surfing and boogie boarding and they'll be just doing their thing and before they know it, they'll look up and, and our little tent is not there and their mom and dad, they're not there and there's a really weird condo in front of them or a hotel that they're not used to and they'll realize that there's some 200 yards down the beach and that the waves and the current that have just taken them so far from home base, they're not even sure where home base is anymore. And the scriptures tell us that life has a tendency to do the same exact thing to you and to me and to our awareness of God's grace and his love. Not just Galatians 5.1, but five times in his letters, five times Paul specifically commands his readers to stand firm in the gospel. Why? Paul presupposes spiritual drift. He knows that we naturally drift away from God's grace and away from God's love. He knows that if we just do life without intentionality and without intentionally standing firm in the gospel, we'll quickly lose sight of it. I'll give you one more example. 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul is rattling off some amazing things. You're beloved by God. God chose to save you. God called you through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory of Jesus. And then he says, brothers and sisters, so then, verse 15, stand firm and hold tight to these things. It's not just Paul. James and Peter both issue this command to stand firm. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, we read it this week in CBR. He says, I've written to you briefly to to declare to you what is the true grace of God. But that's not enough. He says, stand firm in it. And so the Bible teaches us that we have to stand on purpose. The Bible teaches us that we have to proactively and intentionally stand in the gospel or, or without even noticing we will drift away from it. The hymn writer writes it this way, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. When were the Galatians deserting the Father? When were they turning away from the gospel? Paul says, so quickly. So second, what did their deserting or turning away look like? Not how is it described theologically, we'll talk about that in a bit, but what did it actually look like in their lives as they turned away? And you see, in Galatia, these new Christians, they were caught in the middle of this theological debate. It was between Paul and the false teachers from Jerusalem, as I've already said. And so so what Paul is talking about in this first chapter is very doctrinal. It's very theoretical. It's very conceptual. But if you keep reading in the epistle, you're soon going to see that the bad doctrine of the false teachers is being played out or is being fleshed out in the lives of the Galatians. Okay, so while we may not subscribe to false teaching, our lives today will show that we at times functionally believe, functionally believe false doctrine. Uh, let me say it this way. Some of us this morning are, are just now figuring this out. 
In a little while, when I speak again to the concepts of the gospel, you need to hear that. You need to understand how the gospel is so different from religion. But there's a lot of us in this room that, that have been giving the right answers for a very long time. And we need to see that what it actually looks like in our lives when we desert the Father and when we turn away from the gospel. So what I want to do is I want to give you some examples from the book of Galatians, the rest of the book, to show you what it looks like, not when you've conceptually deserted the gospel, but when you've actually deserted the gospel. First, people-pleasing can be what it looks like when we turn away. When we don't stand firm in God's acceptance of us and in God's delight in us through Jesus, we will begin to seek identity and value in what other people think about us and whether or not they're pleased with us. That's in chapter 1. Or turning away from the gospel can look like not caring about people in desperate circumstances. If we don't stand firm and stay mindful of our desperate situation apart from, apart from Christ, we won't naturally give compassion and mercy and grace to people in desperate circumstances. And so while most of us would say that we're theologically in a desperate place apart from Jesus, our lack of care for people in desperate places shows us that we've actually lost touch with how desperate we are apart from Jesus. Uh, Pride in our hearts can be what it looks like in our lives uh, when we desert the Father. Pride in our hearts when we do good things. You you see, the gospel tells us that, that God does good work in us and God does good work through us. But we turn away from the gospel, not just when we think I've got to work to get God to love me, but we turn away from the gospel when we take credit for and feel good about God's work in us. It's not a true false test as to whether or not you've deserted the Father. Our actual theology gets fleshed out in our lives. I'll give you two more and then we'll move on. Uh, Turning away from the gospel looks like self-centered, self-referential living. So so apart from the gospel, I will live life for me. I will interpret all of reality through the lens of how that reality is impacting me. But the truth taught to us in the gospel is that God had to die to save me. And that truth makes me humble. That truth keeps me from thinking of myself as the center of the universe and as the supreme being alive. But at the same time, when I turn away from the gospel, it looks like a decrease of joy and peace and freedom and hope in my heart. Because the gospel isn't just God had to die for me, but God chose to die for me. And when he did that, and when he chose that, and when he said, I'd rather go through hell to have them forever in heaven instead of being in heaven forever without them, when I see that, it doesn't matter what's happening right now in my circumstances. I can have joy and peace and freedom and hope. And so in chapter 1, it's very conceptual, it's very theological. But in our lives, chapters uh, 2 and following, this is what it looks like when we desert the Father, when we turn away from the gospel. So it's not just having wrong answers to theological questions, but it's people-pleasing and lack of compassion and pride and anxiety. And so to review, the Galatians were so quickly, almost instantly turning away from the gospel, deserting the one who had called them by the grace of Christ. And in this deserting, as you begin to look through the rest of the book, you see that this desertion begins to wreak havoc on them and begins to disrupt them and begins to bring great disunity to their body. But third, let's ask the question, what caused their turning away? What caused 
They're deserting. Said differently, why didn't they stand firm? Okay, I want to state the obvious, and I want to make sure we don't miss the impact for our lives. If you look at verses 8 and 9, what is really obvious about verses 8 and 9? Other than the fact that Paul's really amped up. What's obvious is this. Their turning away was caused by the presence of false teaching and the absence of biblical teaching. Their desertion was caused by the presence of Paul's rivals preaching a distorted gospel, verse 7, and by the reality that no one was preaching the real gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't get distracted by the anathemas and miss the obvious point in verses 8 and 9. We're going to actually talk more about this in the coming weeks. The obvious point of verses 8 and 9 is that preaching and teaching are very powerful. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, that is the one given to us by revelation from Jesus. Paul says, even if I preach a gospel contrary to the one I gave you last time, let me be accursed, eternally condemned. And then to make sure you know, he wasn't just sort of speaking out of emotion. He's actually being quite thoughtful and quite measured. He says, I'll say it again. As I've said before, I say again. If anyone is preaching to a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Why so harsh? Why so drastic? Why not just let it go? Why not let other people pick what's true for them? Because preaching is powerful. Because corrupt preaching and the absence of biblical preaching is very, very damaging. And so in a moment, I'm going to discuss the the distortion and the perversion in their gospel. But before we move to that, I don't want to miss the point. Because humans are created in God's image and because we're created for relationship with God, words are very powerful to us and words are very powerful between us. And Paul is saying in verses 8 and 9, at least this, not that he wants all preaching to stop unless it's being done by him. And not just that he wants the false teachers condemned, but also implied in verses 8 and 9 is that Paul desires for the gospel of Christ to be preached. If we turn away from the grace of Christ and desert the one who called us, and if we find ourselves caught in many sins and in much belief, Paul is saying it comes from two reasons. First, we listen to the false gospel of our world telling us how we can have life and peace and joy in created things. But second, it's because we're not often enough hearing the real gospel of the life that we have in Jesus. If we don't schedule our lives around hearing the gospel of the grace of Christ, if we don't schedule our lives around hearing the gospel of the grace of Christ, we should expect to drift from that grace, to turn away from that gospel, to abandon the Father. It's like my kids playing in the ocean. What do they need to keep them close to home base when they're drifting? They need me to stand on the shore and yell at them and tell them to come back to where they were before they began their drift. This is like our need for gospel preaching. We need to stand on the shore of one another's lives and call each other back to home base. Back to the Father who loves and accepts us because of Jesus. 
back to Jesus who lived and died and was, and was resurrected to have us. Back to the grace and the unmerited favor and the unconditional love that defines us. This is not something we can tell ourselves. This is something that has to be proclaimed to us. Finally, for this morning, why were the Galatians deserting so quickly? Why were they deserting so quickly? Why were they tempted to follow this false gospel? And I think there's about 732 correct answers, but I want to give you one of them. Okay? What Paul calls a distorted gospel in verse 7 and a contrary gospel in verses 8 and 9, why was this so tempting to the Galatians? Here's why. Because that gospel sounded so much like the one Paul had just preached. Because that, quote, gospel sounded so much like the one that Paul had just preached. You see, if the false teachers had said, Jesus didn't exist, Jesus is a phony, you actually didn't experience Jesus, you had a break with reality. If they were to preach that to the Galatians, what would the Galatians have done? They would have kicked them to the curb. But here's what's so insidious about the false teaching. They were saying this, Jesus is awesome. He's a really good start. This is why the false teaching was so insidious is because they weren't doubting the Galatians' experience of Jesus in the past, but they were telling the Galatians, if you want to experience him more in the future, you've got to do these things. You see, they were tricked and they were duped and they were caught in this false teaching, not because it was the opposite of what Paul was saying, but because it was so close to what Paul was saying. And so they began to move towards this, quote, gospel. Paul actually gives us indicators in the text as to why the Galatians were fooled. If you look in verse 6, he says, you are turning to a different gospel. He actually says there's a different good news. But then he turns around at the very beginning of verse 7 and says almost parenthetically, not that there's actually another gospel. And so he's saying you were tricked by another gospel, but wait, there is no other gospel. They were fooled because on the one hand, it was just another gospel, but on the other hand, it wasn't good news at all. So further in the text, Paul uses these two words to describe the gospel, this gospel that's being preached by the false teachers. And unfortunately, uh, both of these are poorly translated on almost every English translation. Every commentator I read said, these are really bad translations. Every other preacher in history that I've read on this text says, these are really bad translations. I, I'm not the one that decides this. I'm just letting you know. These are bad translations. Paul says it's a distorted gospel in verse 7. He says it's a contrary gospel in verse 8. Let me tell you what those words actually mean. First, contrary in verses 8 and 9 means beside, next to, above. Would you think that contrary means beside, next to, and above? It's a spatial term for close neighbors. But in verse 7, the word to distort simply means this, to reverse, to turn inside out, to turn around, to turn upside down, uh, to turn something on its head, the reverse or the opposite. How can both of these things be true? Paul is saying, on the one hand, the false teacher's gospel is right next to mine. It's so similar. But on the other hand, Paul is saying their gospel is the exact opposite of what I preached to you, and it could not be more different. What does this mean? As soon as we add anything to Jesus, as soon as we add anything to grace, as soon as we add anything to unconditional love, we lose Jesus, we lose grace, 
we lose unconditional love. We haven't just gone from 100% right to 95% right. We've gone from 100% right to 100% wrong. Uh, It's like sangria, which I have a spiritual gift for, the making of sangria. It's like putting all of the ingredients into the pitcher. And then someone comes along later and says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put a small bottle of cyanide in the sangria. You're like, well, that's 190 ounces of the right ingredients and 10 ounces of the wrong ingredient. It's, 90, it's 95% right. No, it's 100% wrong. It's not 95% fun. It's 100% not fun. So why were they turning away so quickly? Because the false teaching wasn't just an attempt to replace Jesus or to deny Jesus. It was an attempt to add to Jesus. You see why it's so insidious? So what this tells us is when we experience the list I just gave you from chapters 2 through 6, it's not because we're denying Jesus, it's because we're trying to add to Jesus. Think about what the word in verse 7 means. It means to reverse. What does that tell you about the gospel? That tells you that in the gospel there's a fundamental order. There's a logical order to it, and it is this. God, by grace through Jesus, loves me, accepts me, commits himself to me, promises to complete the work he started in me. And because of that, I live my life for him. Religion is this. It's the the absolute reverse of the gospel. I live my life for God so he loves me and accepts me and commits himself to me. Do you see the difference? On the one hand, it seems so slight, but on the other hand, it's massive. It doesn't matter how small the ingredient is that you put next to Jesus. Anything you put next to Jesus in front of the moment where God loves us is not just adding something to to Jesus and diluting Jesus. It is turning the message into a non-gospel. It is no longer good news. It is bad news. And what Paul is telling us this morning is that we will have to proactively fight to keep ourselves standing firm in the correct order of the gospel. Or without even noticing it, we will drift far from the place of peace and joy and hope. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that in our faithfulness, you are, in our, our faithlessness, you are faithful. We thank you that you died for us and therefore there is no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you have given your righteousness to us as a free gift and that there is no need to add to it and there is no way we could add to it. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would please save us from trying to add to the sufficiency and the adequacy of Jesus. Help us see what we add to him. Help us see what we're tempted to add to the gospel in order to earn the Father's love. Lord, help us to see these good things that we try and do to get you to love us. Show us the deadly cyanide that we put into the gospel that robs us of the gospel entirely. We pray that you give us grace to identify where we distort the truth. Give us the grace we need to turn from this, to acknowledge this, to repent to yet again find ourselves in the loving arms of our Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray.